Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Sierra Athletics Media Podcast. I'm your co-host, Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly, along with my colleagues, my co-hosts for the program, um, uh, Francis C. Harris and Charles F. Harris Jr., uh, the Brothers Harris, who are also uh, co-authors of The Pictorial History of the African-American Athlete, a comprehensive look at the black athlete in the college ranks, HBCUs, and the pro ranks. Uh, how you guys doing? How are you, Calvin? Uh, we're doing just fine. Um, we've got, uh, we've got uh, what, three episodes That's out right. there now? We're, gonna, right. we're working on the fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're getting some pickups. Yes. Uh, for those of you who are just tuning in, you know, we're available, obviously, on the Anchor Network, but we're also on on Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Spotify. So, you know, you can find uh, the Sierra Athletics Media Podcast, you know, on a variety of platforms. But, you know, just before we get started, and uh, and we're going to, and today, actually, we're going to be talking about pioneering African-American female athletes. But before we get started, can you tell our audience just a little bit about what is the pictorial history of the African-American athlete, which all of these po- podcasts are based on? Yes. Well, the pictorial history of the African-American athlete is a four-volume series, uh, two collegiate volumes, two professional volumes, has 2,500 photographs in each volume. And uh, the first uh, collegiate volume has 31 historically black colleges and universities. It's in the order of... uh, each university, it was the year that each university was founded, and then 34 34 major colleges and universities in alphabetical order. And what we do in the criteria is we pick any uh, athlete, African-American athlete that's been chosen all-conference, all-American, in the university's uh, college's uh, hall of fame, and uh, coaches, uh, men and women coaches that have been in the university. So uh, it's the late 1800s, Collegiate Volume 1 is the late 1800s to 1945. Collegiate Volume 2 is 1946 to the present, and the criteria there is the first African-American athlete that uh, performed at uh, any university or college, college or university. Uh, that's basically the schools that are in the south and the southwest, some in the west coast. And there are about 97, 98 major colleges, universities, and collegiate volume two. Uh, professional volume one uh, deals with baseball, basketball, or football, and boxing. And the professional volume two, I mean, uh, four, uh, deals with uh, track and field, the Olympics. Uh, what is it? Swimming, tennis, tennis, mm-hmm. uh, volleyball, uh, skating, thoroughbred horse racing. That's right. Mm-hmm. So that's basically it. And mm-hmm. uh, as I said, each there's a lot of uh, not, not only images but detailed biographical information on almost every athlete in every section. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think about 650 pages mm-hmm. in each volume. And uh, it's very comprehensive. It's really an extraordinary resource uh, on the African-American athlete. And then you'll hear more about, about the pictorial history of the African-American in subsequent shows. Yes. But in this particular show, we're going we're gonna to throw some light, a spotlight on pioneering female African-American athletes. In fact, a really extraordinary uh, trio of, of athletes. 
um, the, the great educator tenor, and tennis champion, Lucy Dick Slow, uh, great tennis champion also and basketball player, Ora Mae Washington, and, you know, and a woman uh, considered one of the most versatile um, athletes, really black or white, Inez uh, Roby Pat Patterson. So let's start off, um, uh, Francis, with, uh, uh, tell us about Lucy Diggslow. And obviously, since this is a, this is a Howard University thing to some extent, um, uh, she's of, of particular interest to us. Well, uh, Lucy Dixlow was born in uh, 1883 in uh, Berryville, Virginia. And uh, by the time she was six years old, uh, both of her parents had uh, died, and uh, she moved with a paternal aunt named Martha Slow Price. And uh, they lived in Lexington, Virginia until 1898. And then they, uh, they moved, the Price family moved to Baltimore, Maryland, and Lucy Dixlow attended uh, Baltimore Colored High School. Uh, she graduated as a class with Teller in uh, 1904, and uh, she was the first female of the Baltimore Colored High School to graduate. And then the, she earned an academic scholarship to Howard University. Uh, while she was a student in Howard University, uh, I think in her senior year, uh, 1908 is when she, along with uh, 15 other female students at Howard, uh, founded the uh, AKA Sorority Incorporated. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the Alpha Kappa Alpha yeah. um, Sorority. It's the first Greek letter sorority founded by mm-hmm. African American women. Uh, she graduated from Howard uh, as a class Victorian, and uh, valedictorian, mm-hmm. excuse me, in 1908. And she earned a bachelor's of art degree and uh, mm-hmm. went back to the Baltimore Colored High School and, and began a teaching position there. But she also. Uh, and around 1911, she began to work on her master's degree at Columbia University Graduate School of Arts and Science. Uh, earned a master's degree at around 1915, but she continued from basically uh, the rest of her life taking courses and teaching at uh, Columbia University's Teachers College. Can I just jump in for a second? Mm-hmm. I mean, she has an enormous, uh, I mean, as, you, as you're going to tell us, really has an, an enormous impact on education mm-hmm. as well as athletics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but around this time, around 1915, really that's when uh, she started, she joined um, a precursor to the ATA? Well, she, she uh, was a member of the Monumental Tennis Club in Baltimore, which mm-hmm. later became um, the Baltimore Tennis Club. And this was a tennis club, as you know, it's during segregation. Mm-hmm. So this was a tennis club that uh, African Americans Mm-hmm. Uh, frequented mm-hmm. and basically tennis was a sport at that time that African Americans played, but it was by the upper class of high African Americans, yeah. mm-hmm. like lawyers, sure, doctors, mm-hmm. and what have you. So uh, the Monumental Tennis Club is where the first the seeds of mm-hmm. the American Tennis Association mm-hmm. were planted, right mm-hmm. there. And you're going to tell us about the American Tennis well, Association, American, also yeah, a yeah. really key organization mm-hmm. uh, in Jim Crow segregated athletics in this country. Well, that, you know, they had no, African Americans mm-hmm. had no other place to play tennis or another, they weren't allowed to play with mm-hmm. the USLTA, the United States Lawn Tennis Association. Mm-hmm. So ATA was formed in 1916 mm-hmm. um, in the, at Monumental Tennis Club, 
and mm -hmm. prominent African Americans uh, pro to provide encouragement and information, and also tournaments to the members mm -hmm. of not just uh, the Monumental Tennis Club, but tennis clubs all around the country. Because mm -hmm. this was know. a national tournament yeah, yeah, and that, focal point. Mm -hmm, that's uh, right. So you you got black tennis players from all over the country. All over the country. Mm -hmm. So uh, the thing about it was she had been playing tennis. Long, uh, well, I guess three or four years before at the mm -hmm. Monumental Line in Baltimore, uh, before the ATA was formed. But uh, the as I said, the ATA was formed at the Monumental Tennis Club, and their first tennis tournament was in 1917. They were, mm -hmm. were organized in 1916, and it was played at the Drew Hill Park uh, 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 courts in Baltimore, and. Uh, 33 clubs sent the, uh, from around the country thir sent 33, mm -hmm. 39 entrants. And uh, Lucy Dixlow won the first mm -hmm. women's tournament in 1917. And Tally Holmes, uh, interested because Tally Holmes is from Washington, D.C. Uh -huh. And uh, he was part owner of, it's now closed now, but it was the White Law Hotel. Mm -hmm. And uh, he went to Dartmouth College. He did not play tennis at Dartmouth, mm -hmm. even though he could. Yeah, they didn't allow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, they didn't allow African Americans on a tennis team, so he yeah. didn't play. But he's a graduate of Dartmouth yeah. College. Just to, just to jump on that again, I know I I just want to emphasize to our listeners out there who you know maybe you know they don't, they've heard of segregation, mm -hmm. they've heard of Jim Crow, mm -hmm. but this was pervasive in American life. Of course. Uh, of course. you know and, and we just need to emphasize how this affected daily life the daily lives of black people. Well, you know, you you're looking about you're talking about Baltimore. Mm -hmm. you're, well, well, Jim Crow not it wasn't as obvious say here in New York. Mm -hmm. It you know, there were, it still existed. It still existed. Yeah. But uh, I mean, and, and I, as soon as you, I'm sure, as soon as you got maybe on the other side in, in parts of Le southern New Jersey, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, definitely in Maryland, yeah, and definitely in Washington D.C., Washington, <laughs> the and nation's then, capital, yeah, and then yeah. all the way down to mm -hmm. the south. So uh, well, it's not as bad because African Americans made up what uh, close to sixty percent of Washington, seventy percent. Yeah, I think it was like seventy percent when I was yeah. young I in remember, the sixties. Yeah, I remember mm. uh, reading uh, some place about Buck Leonard, the play for the Homestead mm. Grays, played first base, um, and uh, saying that they always believed a lot of the Negro Leagues players felt that the first black player in the major leagues would be with the senators mm -hmm. because of the fact that Washington had so many African-American mm -hmm. fans. I mean, mm -hmm. they were packing, the Grays sure. were packing Griffith Stadium. Sure. So they always felt, the, mm -hmm. not of the Negro League players, felt that the first African-American that to play major league baseball would come from Washington. But as I said, it was, you know, as you know, mm -hmm. segregation existed yeah. there. So... And the baseball story is very interesting, yeah. and particularly the relationship that the Griffith family yeah. had with the Homestead of Grays. Course, of course, and that's a whole that 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 could be a show <laughs> in and of itself of with of some of this, the the uh, the information about the profit profitability of, of black baseball of they, they, hiring white uh, major league stadiums. Mm -hmm. So there was uh, to some extent there was a certain benefit even to black owners mm -hmm. in those days yeah. to have. Jim Crow continued. Yeah, of course. So, um, but that's a that's a story huh. for another show. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, so this tennis club, these tennis clubs mm -hmm. all around the country, uh, were formed 
because African Americans yeah. couldn't go and they couldn't play, you know, on a lot of the courts that what their the white contemporaries played on. So uh, she, as I said, in 1917, mm-hmm. Losey Dixlow won it, uh, the first uh, tournament in uh, female turn. Mm-hmm. Tally Holmes won it. Uh, and on, on this, also at this time, at around 1915 until 1919, she uh, taught at Armstrong mm-hmm. Manual Training High School in Washington. And as you know, Armstrong was across the street from Dunbar. Mm-hmm. Uh, at around 1919, she became the first principal when they opened uh, Robert G. Shaw Jr. Mm-hmm. High School. Shaw is, well, it's closed now, but it was on the corner of Rhode Island Avenue and uh, Georgia Avenue in Washington. And that was the first junior high school in Washington, D.C. for African Americans. Mm-hmm. So she was the first principal, and she drew up basically the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And this has been uh, part of her legacy to every every place that she's taught at, that she uh, created curriculums for at at Armstrong, mm-hmm. and she did it at Shaw. Mm-hmm. And after she was at, and, and this is also uh, while she was taking uh, teaching classes at, at Columbia mm-hmm. also. But around 1922 is when she was appointed uh, first dean of women and associated prof- yeah. associate professor of English at Howard University. Mm-hmm. And as the dean of women, um, she was active in all of the uh, formation of edu- educational policies of the university, uh, but she did mm-hmm. run into a lot of some problems with the president, Mordecai Johnson. Yes, uh, the legendary president yes. of Howard University. Yes. But uh, yeah, so there's some conflict over yeah. her uh, educational uh, uh, vision. Well, she, she she had a vision for not just women. Mm-hmm. She had a vision for the entire mm-hmm. faculty of the university. And so she presented certain concepts of teaching and what have you. To Mordecai Johnson, I think also she tried to get a higher salary for some of the members mm-hmm. of the faculty. And uh, I think uh, Mordecai Johnson, as far as, he, he was a chauvinist. Yeah. And his attitude mm-hmm. was, you know, he went along somewhat, but his attitude where women came to the university to find a husband yeah. And, yeah. Uh, well. Yeah. You know, we know I mean, the attitude. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he didn't really look at <laughs> yeah. it like you know they're going to go. Women are going to go to the med school, or women are going to go to the mm-hmm. uh, uh, school of law. You know, he looked at the. Uh, that's how he looked at her. Yeah. And so he, you know, he didn't really follow what, you know, what exactly uh, she wanted. Yeah. But uh, she she was a very strong will lady. Around 1935, when Mary McLeod Bethune was establishing yeah. the, um, the um, um, National Council of Negro Women, you know she helped write the charter, mm-hmm. and uh, she was also the council's first secretary. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I guess by 1937, she um, uh, developed problems with her health. And uh, she uh, succumbed to those problems with kidney failure, and she was just 54 in 1937. Yeah, yeah. But she really, I mean, obviously there's a residence hall oh, yeah. of, named yeah. after her. And there's, a, there's a stained glass uh, yeah, yeah. Rankin, Rankin Memorial Chapel yeah. dedicated to her. So, so uh, really a, a really giant um, uh, in uh, uh, Howard University personality, mm-hmm. national personality, um, 
and really all of these women really are quite extraordinary in their, in their accomplishments considering the challenges and the obstacles that are thrown in, uh, mm-hmm. thrown in front of them. So let's move on to uh, another extraordinary woman, Ora Mae Washington. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Chuck, tell us about tell, tell us about her early background. Okay, well first of all um, her name was Ora Mae Washington and she is probably in the early 20th century considered the queen of tennis mm. amongst uh, African Americans. Uh, she was also known as the most dominant women's tennis player before the emergence of Althea Gibson, the great Althea mm-hmm. Gibson, mm-hmm. who uh, was one of the first black women to win uh, Wimbledon. Um, she was born uh, Ora Mae Washington on June 23, 1898, in uh, Caroline County, Virginia. But um, Shortly thereafter, her uh, family moved to the Germantown section of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, which was uh, affluent for African Americans Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. A couple of people that come to mind that are from Germantown, um, on the top of my head, members of the Stylistics singing group. Um, Abe Manley, Manley, who with uh, Mm. her... uh, with with her wife, with his wife, uh, Effa Manley, started the Newark Eagles. Yes. He's also um, a, a person from the Germantown German, section yeah. of Philadelphia. So um, early on in uh, all watching this athletic career, she was noticed by a woman by the name of Rose Yancey, who happened to be the, phil- the physical education instructor at the Germantown YWCA in Forum. People who don't know, that's the Young Women's Christian Association. So, Miss um, Yancey, as she was known, uh, saw that Oral Washington was a natural on the tennis court. Um, mm. I'm going to talk about her basketball experience. Yeah, a little there's later more. Too. Yes, but um, <laughs> um, it was Yancey who discovered that she was a natural uh, on the tennis court, and soon after, uh, Oral Washington started to participate in the American Tennis Association, mm-hmm. like Lucy Dixlow or the ATA, and uh, she participated. Uh, at the ATA uh, National Tournament at Droid Park, located in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, in her first uh, time at the tournament, she lost in the third round of the tournament. But she sooner or later uh, started to win, and she won her first uh, singles title on the ATA circuit in Wilmington, Delaware, where she defeated Lula Ballard. Who from Cleveland, Ohio, who happened to be the ATA women's singles champion at the time. Um, later on, Or Washington started to play better players and defeat them while competing in tennis matches in New York, New England, Pennsylvania, Virginia, as well as Indiana. So she's starting to gather her greatness among playing yeah. some of the better players on the ATA circuit. Um, she also defeated uh, Isabel Chandler uh, in the title match of the New York State Association Women's Championship uh, mm. along the way. Um, so, as, sorry, ahead. no, I just want to jump in. I mean, mm-hmm. just how many titles did she win? Well, uh, Oral Washington won eight straight. Uh, eight straight. ATA Women's Singles Championships from 1929 to 1936, and she was defeated. That's over a period of seven years. Wow. And she won championships in the doubles as well as the singles and mixed doubles. So she won basically every category. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. She I was mean, very a dominant, dominant player. 
Now, okay. it's interesting because I do know in some instances there were exhibition matches between white players and black players. Exactly. Uh, right. But in her case, it seems like um, they were trying to avoid her. The white players were trying to avoid her. Well, uh, one... Or the uh, main one, anyway. Well, the main one in particular during this time was Helen Wills, Willis Moody, mm-hmm. who was uh, the most dominant white female tennis sure. player of that time period. She had won 31 Grand Slam tournaments, uh, those being seven U.S. Opens, uh, eight Wimbledon titles, singles titles, uh, four French Open uh, singles titles, as well as various doubles, mixed doubles titles from 1924 to 1938. Mm-hmm. But she wouldn't play. She wouldn't play or wouldn't Washington. play or. Yeah. You know, I wonder which, why. <laughs> I, I don't know, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a shame that uh, she didn't get a chance or she did not play or watch it this time. And, and co- coincidentally, at this time, uh, Don Budge, yeah, yes. who's the number one uh, ranked tennis player, uh, he played uh, Jimmy McDaniel, who was the number one tennis player on the ATA circuit. Uh, they actually played an exhibition uh, at the famed Cosmopolitan Tennis Club in uh, Harlem, New York, in the, um, June 29, 1940. Uh, Budge actually won that title, uh, that tennis exhibition. But um, he did play uh, Jimmy McDaniel. Mm-hmm. He uh, gave him a yeah. yeah he, he let gave get, him a shot. yeah yeah. Um, now her her, her I mean her her excellence and dominance in, in tennis is astounding. Yes. But she was also an extraordinary basketball player. Yes, that's the great thing about this uh, this athlete, Aura Washington. Um, in 1939, she retired from tennis, uh, stopped playing it. But well, she would play certain exhibitions, but she didn't play on the ATA circuit as often as she had done before. And um, she was uh, also noted uh, one of the greatest uh, uh, women's basketball players at this time too. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, her basketball career began in 1930. You know, as a member of the Germantown Hornets, uh, which at that time had a 22 and one record. Uh, during that season of 1930, and uh, they went on to capture the National uh, Women's Championship, which was a championship on the so-called colored basketball mm-hmm. circuit for women. Um, she later joined the um, Otto Briggs Tribune girls basketball team. Uh, Otto Briggs was a uh, was a writer for the uh, Philadelphia Tribu- uh, Tribune uh, at that time, and uh, she was one of their star players from 1930 to 1942. So here you she have was, the tennis player. Yeah, well, uh, so she not only she was a leading scorer. Did she coach the team too? She was a leading scorer. She was a team <laughs> center, and uh, she was also the coach yeah. uh, for this famed uh, Tribune girls basketball team. Uh, they went on to win eleven consecutive women's black national championships. No. So, so that was sort of a remarkable feat at that time for a, a sure. person that was playing tennis and playing basketball sure. too. So just a remarkable legacy, uh, and uh, she was inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in yes. 2009? Uh, yes. Uh, before that, also, uh, she went on to uh, play at least uh, one more uh, uh, American Tennis Association championship, oh. the 1947 Women's Doubles Championship, which she lost to the uh, Peters sisters, who were dominant on the ATA circuit from 40, 1944 to 1953. So is this the, 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 the sisters that were called Pete and Repeat? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Margaret and Matilda? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, Romania. Right, Margaret and Matilda, Romania. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, she did retire from, profession- from professional sports, as 
they were known at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, she just taught uh, physical education at the Germantown YMCA. Mm, right. You know, and uh, also became a domestic worker. Uh, you were saying about her induction into the Halls of Fame. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2009, she was inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. And um, just last year, in 2018, she was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball right. Hall of Fame uh, based on her basketball exploits. Yeah. So that was a, a long time coming. Uh, I did mention that she uh, passed away in... Um, May 21st of 1971 at the age of 73 yeah. in Philadelphia as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, she received these accolades later on in life. I'm glad that she was recognized because yeah. it was, uh, you know, a situation where um, a lot of uh, women in the WNBA don't know about don't, this yeah. woman who sure. dominated basketball, I mean, practically 60 years before there was an establishment of the sure. WNBA. Sure, no, a really remarkable story. Yes. All right. Now, okay, we're going to jump back to Francis for um, for the last, but certainly not the least, uh, of our pioneering uh, black female athletes. Um, yeah, Francis Inez Roby Patterson. Yeah, Inez Patterson was a great all around athlete. Um, she was born in 1911 in Chester, Pennsylvania, but um, she grew up in the um, Elmwood, sec Elmwood section of Philadelphia. Uh, attended King Carey Elementary School, but. Uh, she first came notice for athletic ability at uh, Tilden Junior High School in Philadelphia. And uh, at that time, she was the captain of the girls' basketball team, and volleyball team, and track and field team just in junior high school. In 1925, uh, she won the Philadelphia City Junior High round on throw and won individual high school track honors. And she, in the fall of 1925, is when she enrolled at West Philadelphia High School, and that's when she became a household name in mm -hmm. the city of Philadelphia. Uh, during her high school career for four years, she was the only African-American woman on the girls' hockey team. She set a record in the round arm throw of 93 feet, and mm -hmm. she uh, also played uh, basketball for the McCoach Playground girls' basketball team which was a, a well-known team, but was, <clears throat> excuse me, coached by a woman by the name of Jesse Yarborough. So she won the Philadelphia Inquirer track and field meet uh, for the shot put uh, uh, event and matriculated to Temple University in the fall of 29. Yeah. And it was at yeah. Temple mm -hmm. that she really became known uh, all-around uh, athlete, women athlete, and probably the most well-known women athlete, uh, along, I guess, would say babes at um, Dedrickson. Mm -hmm. um, uh, she was, uh, as a student athlete at Temple uh, for four years, she was on all the all-collegiate teams in girls' hockey for four straight years, uh, mm -hmm. basketball, volleyball, uh, track and field, tennis, and dancing. She was the uh, only African-American woman to participate in the May Day Festival. And... Uh, she was a, an excellent swimmer, mm. and she uh, took the Red, American Red Cross examiner's <laughs> she, course. She didn't leave anything on, yeah, on, on, on no stone left yeah, she unturned. Was, she was just a dominant woman, but it was interesting because when she um, graduated for Temple, 
from Temple University for a short while. That was in 1929 in the 30s. She played uh, with Oral Washington on uh, the uh, on Otto Briggs Philadelphia Tribune uh -huh. team for a short time, and then she phoned her an, on, her own team called the Philadelphia Quick Steppers, the women basketball team, mm -hmm. and they won the 1929 was in the Eastern uh, Colored Women's Basketball Championship. Mm -hmm. So after her uh, career ended, uh, as terms of her playing career. She uh, taught physical education and recreation at the uh, Young Women's Christian Association, that's a YWCA, mm -hmm. not, not only in Orange, but in Newark and in Montclair, New Jersey. Um, she also organized a lot of uh, tennis clubs in New York, tennis, New York State Tennis Association and uh, was appointed National Program Director for the American ATA in 1938. Mm -hmm. Uh, but from 1937 to 1944, she was um, the physical edu education director at the Harlem branch of the YWCA here in uh, New York. Mm -hmm. uh, but she also died very young, uh, 1932, I mean, at 32 in 1944. So uh, she had a brief illness and went mm -hmm. back to Philadelphia. So mm -hmm. she... She was in her early 30s when she... Uh, yeah, no, it's very sad. And yeah, but but uh, in 1987 is when she was inducted to the Temple University Athletic Hall of Fame. Mm. Well, uh, once again, a remarkable career. Um, I mean, the versatility, I mean, to basically, you know, be all collegiate on every, pretty yeah. much every varsity sport. Yes, yes. Uh, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Once again, at a, at a critical uh, time period mm -hmm. for uh, for women's athletics. Um, well, this has been a really um, eye-opening uh, episode for me. Uh, I'm now I'm familiar with uh, Lucy Slow Diggs because I went to Howard, mm -hmm. and I knew the name, but I'm, I'm learning stuff every day mm -hmm. about many of these athletes that I really did not know anything mm -hmm. about. So uh, thanks to you guys, okay. and thanks to the pictorial history of the African-American <laughs> athlete. Thank you, Calvin. Uh, uh, more of us will be able to learn some more about this. And, and in fact, keep listening to this podcast we're going to return with more stories about African-American athletic excellence in the weeks to come. So thanks, you guys, and uh, we'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you, Thank Calvin. You. Thank you, Calvin.